Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Volume 16, Chapter 41, The Fearful Disaster of 1865 One of the most memorable of all the Alpine catastrophes was of July 1865 on the Matterhorn, already slightly referred to a few pages back. The details of it are scarcely known in America. To the vast majority of readers, they are not known at all. Mr. Wimper's account is the only authentic one. I will import the chief portion of it into this book, partly because of its intrinsic interest and partly because it gives such a vivid idea of what the perilous pastime of alp climbing is. This was Mr. Wimper's ninth attempt during a series of years to vanquish that steep and stubborn pillar of rock. It succeeded. The other eight were failures. No man had ever accomplished the ascent before, though the attempts had been numerous. Here's Mr. Wimper's narrative. We started from Zermont on the 13th of July, at half-past five, on a brilliant and perfectly cloudless morning. We were eight in number. Crows, the guide, old Peter Togwalder, guide, and his two sons. Lord F. Douglas, Mr. Hadrow, Reverend Mr. Hudson, and I. To ensure steady motion, one tourist and one native walked together. The youngest Targwalder fell to my share. The wine bags also fell to my lot to carry, although the day after each drink I replenished them secretly with water, so that the next halt they were found fuller than before. This was considered a good omen, and little short of miraculous. On the first day we did not intend to ascend to any great height, and we mounted accordingly very leisurely. Before twelve o'clock we found a good position for the tent, at a height of eleven thousand feet. We passed the remaining hours of daylight, some basking in the sunshine, some sketching, some collecting. Hudson made tea, I coffee, and at length we retired, each one to his sleeping bag. We assembled together before dawn on the 14th and started directly. It was light enough to move. One of the young Targwalders returned to Zermatt. In a few minutes we turned the rib which had intercepted the view of the eastern face from our tent platform. The whole of this great slope was now revealed, rising for 3,000 feet like a huge natural staircase. Some paths were more and others were less easy but we were not once brought to a halt by any serious impediment, for when an obstruction was met in front, it could always be turned to the right or left. For the greater part of the way there was no occasion indeed for the rope, and sometimes Hudson led, sometimes myself. At 6.20 we had attained a height of 12,800 feet, and halted for half an hour. We then continued the ascent without a break until 9.55, when we stopped for 50 minutes at the height of 14,000 feet. We had now arrived at the foot of that part which, seen from the Riffelberg, seems perpendicular or overhanging. We could no longer continue on the eastern side. For a little distance we ascended by snow upon the art, that is the ridge, then turned over to the right of the northern side. The work became difficult and required caution. In some places there was little to hold. 
The general slope of the mountain was less than 40 degrees, and snow had accumulated in and had filled up the interstices of the rock face, leaving only occasional fragments projecting here and there. These were at times covered with a thin film of ice. It was a place which any fair mountaineer might pass in safety. We bore away nearly horizontally for about 400 feet, then ascended directly toward the summit for about 60 feet, then doubled back to the ridge which descends toward Zermatt. A long stride round a rather awkward corner brought us to snow once more. That last doubt vanished. The Matterhorn was ours. Nothing but 200 feet of easy snow remained to be surmounted. The higher we rose, the more intense became the excitement. The slope eased, and at length we could be detached, and Cross and I, dashed away, ran a neck-and-neck -neck race which ended in a dead heat. At 1.40 p.m., the world was at our feet. The Matterhorn was conquered. The others arrived. Cross now took the tent pole and planted it at the highest snow. Yes, we said, there is a flagstaff, but where is the flag? Here it is, he answered, pulling off his blouse and fixing it to the stick. It made a poor flag, and there was no wind to float it out. Yet it was seen all around. They saw it at Zermatt and at Riffle, in the Val Tournoche. We remained on the summit for one hour, one crowded hour of glorious life. It passed away too quickly, and we began to prepare for the descent. Hudson and I consulted as to the best and safest arrangement for the party. We agreed it was best for Cross to go down first, and had our second. Hudson, who was almost equal to a guide and sureness of footing, wished to be third. Lord Douglas was placed next, and old Peter, the strongest of the remainder, after him. I suggested to Hudson we should attach a rope to the rocks at our arrival, at the difficult bit, and hold it as we descended, as an additional protection. He approved the idea, but it was not definitely decided that it should be done. The party was being arranged in the above order while I was sketching the summit. They had finished and were waiting for me to be tied on the line, when someone remembered that our names had not been left in a bottle. They requested me to write them down and moved off while it was being done. A few minutes afterwards, I tied myself to young Peter and ran down after the others, and caught them just as they were commencing the descent of the difficult part. Great care was being taken. Only one man was moving at a time. While he was firmly planted, the next advanced, and so on. They had not, however, attached the additional rope to the rocks, and nothing was said about it. The suggestion was not made for my own sake, and I am not sure it ever occurred to me again. For some little distance we two followed the others, detached from them, and should have continued so had not Lord Douglas asked me, at about 3 p.m., to tie on to old Peter. As he feared, he said that Togwalder would not be able to hold his ground if a slip occurred. A few minutes later a sharp-eyed lad ran into the Monterosa Hotel at Zermont, saying he had seen an avalanche fall from the summit of the Matterhorn onto the Matterhorn Glacier. The boy was reproved for telling idle stories. He was right nonetheless, and this is what he saw. Michael Crowes had laid aside his axe, and in order to give Mr. Hadro greater security, was absolutely taking hold of his legs 
and putting his feet one by one into their proper positions. As far as I know, no one was actually descending. I cannot speak with certainty, because the two leading men were partially hidden from my sight by an intervening mass of rock. But it is my belief, from the movements of their shoulders, that Cross, having done as I said, was in the act of turning round to go down a step or two himself. At this moment Mr. Hadro slipped, fell against him, and knocked him over. I heard one startled exclamation from Cross, and then saw him and Hadro flying downward. In another moment Hudson was dragged from his steps, and Lord Douglas immediately after him. All this was the work of a moment. Immediately we heard Cross's exclamation. Old Peter and I planted ourselves as firmly as the rocks would permit. The rope was taut between us, and the jerk came on us both as one man. We held, but the rope broke midway between Togwalder and Lord Francis Douglas. For a few seconds we saw our unfortunate companions sliding downward on their backs, spreading out their hands, endeavoring to save themselves. They passed from our sight uninjured, disappeared one by one, and fell from the precipice to precipice onto the Matterhorn Glacier below, a distance of nearly 4,000 feet in height. For the moment the rope broke, it was impossible to help them. So perished our comrades. For more than two hours afterwards, I thought almost every moment that the next would be my last, for the Togwalders, utterly unnerved, were not only incapable of giving assistance, but were in such a state that a slip might have been expected from them at any moment. After a time we were able to do that which should have been done at first, and fixed rope to firm rocks, in addition to being tied together. These ropes were cut from time to time and left behind. Even with their assurance, the men were afraid to proceed, and several times old Peter turned with ashy face and faltering limbs and said with terrible emphasis, I cannot. About 6 p.m. we arrived at the snow upon the ridge descending towards Zermatt, and all peril was over. We frequently looked for traces of our unfortunate companions, but in vain. We bent over the ridge and cried to them, but no sound returned. Convinced at last that they were neither within sight nor hearing, we ceased from our useless efforts, and, too cast down for speech, silently gathered up our things, and the little effects of those who were lost, and then completed the descent. Such is Mr. Wimper's graphic and thrilling narrative. Zermatt gossip darkly hints that the elder Togwalder cut the rope when the accident occurred in order to preserve himself from being dragged into the abyss. But Mr. Wimper says that the ends of the rope showed no evidence of cutting, only breakage. He adds that if Togwalder had had the disposition to cut the rope, he would not have had the time to do that. The accident was so sudden and unexpected. Lord Douglas's body has never been found. It probably lodged upon some inaccessible shelf in the face of the mighty precipice. Lord Douglas was a youth of nineteen. The three other victims fell nearly four thousand feet, and their bodies lay together upon the glacier, 
when found by Mr. Wimper and the others searching the next morning. Their graves are beside the little church in Zermatt. Chapter 42 Sean Has a Nice Roomy Dungeon Switzerland is simply a large, humpy, solid rock with a thin skin of grass stretched over it. Consequently, they do not dig graves. They blast them out with powder and fuse. They cannot afford to have large graveyards. The grass skin is too circumscribed and too valuable. It is all required for the support of the living. The graveyard in Zermatt occupies only about one-eighth of an acre. The graves are sunk into the living rock and are very permanent, but the occupation of them is only temporary. The occupant can only stay till his grave is needed by a later subject. He is then removed, for they do not bury one body on top of another. As I understand it, a family owns a grave, just as it owns a house. A man dies and leaves his house to his son. At the same time, this dead father succeeds to his own father's grave. He moves out of the house and into the grave and his predecessor moves out of the grave and into the cellar of the chapel. I saw a black box lying in the churchyard with skull and crossbones painted on it, and was told that this was used in transferring remains to the cellar. In that cellar, the bones and skulls of several hundred former citizens were compactly corded up. They made a pile eighteen feet long, seven feet high, and eight feet wide. I was told that in some of the receptacles of this kind in Swiss villages, the skulls were all marked, and if a man wished to find the skulls of his ancestors for several generations back, he could do it by these marks, preserved in the family records. An English gentleman who had lived some years in this region said it was the cradle of compulsory education but said that the English idea that compulsory education would reduce bastardy and intemperance was an error. It has not that effect. He said there was more seduction in the Protestant than in the Catholic cantons because the confessional protected the girls. I wonder why it doesn't protect married women in France and Spain. This gentleman said that among the poor peasants in the valet, it was common for the brothers in a family to cast lots to determine which of them would have the coveted privilege of marrying, and his brethren, doomed bachelors, heroically banded themselves together to help support the new family. We left Zermatt in a wagon, and in a rainstorm too, for St. Nicholas, about ten o'clock in the morning. Again we passed between those grass-clad prodigious cliffs specked with wee dwellings peeping over at us from velvety green walls ten and twelve hundred feet high. It did not seem possible that the imaginary chamois even could climb those precipices. Lovers on opposite cliffs probably kiss through a spyglass and correspond with a rifle. In Switzerland, the farmer's plow is a wide shovel, which scrapes up and turns over the thin earthy skin of his native rock. And there the man of the plow is a hero. Now here, by our St. Nicholas Road, was a grave, and it had a tragic story. A plowman was skimming his farm one morning, not even the steepest part of it, but still a steep part. That is, he was not skimming the front of his farm, but the roof of it, 
near the eaves. When he absentmindedly let go of the plow handles to moisten his hands, he lost his balance and fell out of his farm backward. Poor fella. He never even touched anything till he struck bottom 1,500 feet below. We throw a halo of heroism around the life of the soldier and the sailor because of the deadly dangers they are all facing all the time, but we are not used to looking upon farming as a heroic occupation. This is because we have not lived in Switzerland. From St. Nicholas, we struck out for Visp or Vispach on foot. The rainstorms had been at work during several days and had done a deal of damage in Switzerland and Savoy. We came to one place where a stream had changed its course and plunged down a mountain in a new place, sweeping everything before it. Two poor but precious farms by the roadside were ruined. One was washed clear away and the bedrock exposed. The other was buried out of sight under a tumble of rocks and gravel and mud and rubbish. The resistless might of water was well exemplified. Some saplings which had stood in the way were bent to the ground, stripped clean of their bark and buried under rocky debris. The road had been swept away too. In another place where the road was high up on the mountain's face and its outside edge protected by flimsy masonry, we frequently came across spots where this masonry had carved off and left dangerous gaps for mules to get over. And with still more frequency, we found the masonry slightly crumbled and marked by mule hooves, thus showing that there had been danger of an accident to somebody. When at last we came to a badly ruptured bit of masonry with hoofprints evidencing a desperate struggle to regain lost foothold, I looked quite hopefully over the dizzy precipice, but there was nobody down there. They take exceedingly good care of their rivers in Switzerland and other portions of Europe. They wall up both banks with slanting solid stone masonry, so that from end to end of these rivers the banks look like wharves in St. Louis and other towns on the Mississippi River. It was during this walk from St. Nicholas in the shadow of the majestic Alps that we came across some little children amusing themselves in what seemed at first a most odd and original way, but it wasn't. It was simply a natural and characteristic way. They were roped together with a string, they had mimic alpenstocks and ice axes, and they were climbing a meek and lowly manure pile with a most blood-curdling amount of care and caution. The guide at the head of the line cut imaginary steps in a laborious and painstaking way, and not a monkey budged till the step above was vacated. If we had waited, we should have witnessed an imaginary accident, no doubt, and we would have heard the intrepid band hurrah when they made the summit and looked around upon the magnificent view and seen them throw themselves down in exhausted attitudes for a rest in that commanding situation. In Nevada, I used to see children playing at silver mining. Of course, the great thing was an accident in the mine, and there were two star parts that of the man who fell down the mimic shaft, and that of the daring hero who was lowered into the depths to bring him up. I knew one small chap who always insisted on playing both parts, and he carried his point. He would tumble into the shaft and die, and then come to the surface and go back after his own remains. 
It is the smartest boy that gets the hero part everywhere. He's the head guide in Switzerland, the head miner in Nevada, the head bullfighter in Spain, etc. But I knew a preacher's son, seven years old, who once selected a part for himself, compared to which those just mentioned are tame and unimpressive. Jimmy's father stopped him from driving imaginary horse cars one Sunday, stopped him from playing captain of an imaginary steamboat the next, stopped him from leading an imaginary army to battle the following Sunday, and so on. Finally, the little fellow said, I tried everything, and they won't any of them do. What can I play? I hardly know, Jimmy, but you must play only things that are suitable for the Sabbath. The next Sunday, the preacher stepped softly to a backroom door to see if the children were rightly employed. He peeped in. A chair occupied the middle of the room, and on the back of it hung Jimmy's cap. One of his little sisters took the cap down, nibbled at it, then passed it to another sister and said, Eat of this fruit, for it is good. The reverend took in the situation. Alas, they were playing the expulsion from Eden. Yet he found one little crumb of comfort. He said to himself, Well, for once Jimmy has yielded the chief role. I have been wronging him. I did not believe there was so much modesty in him. I should have expected him to be either Adam or Eve. This crumb of comfort lasted but a little while. He glanced around and discovered Jimmy standing in an imposing attitude in a corner with a dark and deadly frown on his face. But that meant was pretty plain. He was impersonating the deity. Think of the guileless sublimity of that idea. We reached Visbach at 8 p.m., only about seven hours out from St. Nicholas, so we must have made a full mile and a half an hour, and it was all downhill, too, and very muddy at that. We stayed all night at the Hotel de Soleil. I remember it because the landlady, the porter, the waitress, and the chambermaid were not separate persons, but were all contained in one neat and chipper suit of spotless muslin. And she was the prettiest young creature I had seen in all the region. She was the landlord's daughter, and I remember that the only native match to her I saw in all of Europe was the young daughter of the landlord of a village inn in the Black Forest. Why don't more people in Europe marry and keep hotels? The next morning we left with a family of English friends and went by train to Brevet, and thence by boat across the lake to Ushi, Lausanne. Ushi is memorable to me, not on account of his beautiful situation and lovely surroundings, although these would make it stick long in one's memory, but as the place where I caught the London Times dropping into humor. It was not aware of it, of course. It did not do it on purpose. An English friend called my attention to this lapse and cut out the reprehensible paragraph for me. Think of encountering a grin like this in the face of that grim journal. Erotum. We are requested by Reuters Telegram Company to correct an erroneous announcement made in their Brisbane Telegram, stating that Lady Kennedy had given birth to twins, the eldest being a son. The company explained that the message they received contained the words, Governor of Queensland, twins' first son. Being, however, subsequently informed that Sir Arthur Kennedy was unmarried, and that there must be some mistake, 
A telegraphic repetition was at once demanded. It has been received today, and shows that the words really telegraphed by Reuters' agent were, Governor Queensland turns first sod, alluding to the Maraborough-Gimpic Railway in course of construction. The words in italics were mutilated by the telegraph in transmission from Australia, and reaching the company in the form mentioned above gave rise to the mistake. I had always had a deep and reverent compassion for the sufferings of the prisoner of Shillong, whose story Byron had told in such moving verse. So I took the steamer and made pilgrimage to the dungeons of the castle of Shillong, to see the place where poor Barnavard endured his dreary captivity three hundred years ago. I'm glad I did that, for it took away some of the pain I was feeling on the prisoner's account. His dungeon was a nice, cool, roomy place, and I cannot see why he should have been dissatisfied with it. If he had been imprisoned in a St. Nicholas private dwelling, where the fertilizer prevails, and the goat sleeps with the guest, and the chickens roost on him, and the cow comes in and bothers him when he wants to muse, it would have been another matter altogether. But he surely could not have had a very cheerless time in that pretty dungeon. It has romantic window slits that let in generous bars of light. It has tall, noble columns carved appropriately from the living rock. And what is more, they are written on all over with thousands of names. Some of them, like Byron's and Victor Hugo's, of the first celebrity. Why didn't he amuse himself by reading these names? Then there are the couriers and the tourists, swarms of them every day. What was to hinder him from having a good time with them? I think Bonnevard's sufferings have been overrated. Next we took the train and went to Martigny on the way to Mont Blanc. Next morning we started at about 8 o'clock on foot. We had plenty of company in the way of wagon loads and mule loads of tourists and dust. This scattering procession of travelers was perhaps a mile long. The road was uphill, interminably uphill, and tolerably steep. The weather was blisteringly hot, and the man or woman who had to sit on a creeping mule or in a creeping wagon and broil in the beating sun was an object to be pitied. We could dodge among the bushes and have the relief of the shade, but those people could not. They paid for a conveyance, and to get their money's worth they rode. We went by way of the Tetnoir, and after we had reached high ground, there was no lack of fine scenery. In one place, the road was tunneled through a shoulder of the mountain. From there, one looked down into a gorge with a rushing torrent in it, and on every hand was a charming view of rocky buttresses and wooded heights. There was a liberal allowance of pretty waterfalls, too, on the Tetnoir route. About half an hour before we reached the village of Argentière, a vast dome of snow with the sun blazing on it drifted into view and framed itself in a strong V-shaped gateway of the mountains, and we recognized Mont Blanc, the monarch of the Alps. With every step after that, that stately dome rose higher and higher into the blue sky, and at last seemed to occupy the zenith. Some of Mount Blanc's neighbors, bare, light brown, steeple-like rocks, were very peculiarly shaped. 
Some were whittled to a sharp point and slightly bent at the upper end, like a lady's finger. One monster sugar loaf resembled a bishop's hat. It was too steep to hold snow on its sides, but had some in the division. While we were still on very high ground, and before the descent toward Argentière began, we looked up toward the neighboring mountaintop and saw exquisite prismatic colors playing about some white clouds which were so delicate as to almost resemble gossamer webs. The faint pinks and greens were peculiarly beautiful. None of the colors were deep. They were the lightest shades. They were bewitchingly commingled. We sat down to study and enjoy this singular spectacle. The tints remained during several minutes, flitting and changing and melting into each other, paling away almost for a moment, then reflushing, a shifting, restless, unstable succession of soft, opaline gleams, shimmering over that air film of white cloud and turning it into a fabric dainty enough to clothe an angel with. By and by we perceived what those super-delicate colors and their continuous play and movement reminded us of. It was what one sees in a soap bubble that is drifting along, catching the changes of tint from the object it passes. A soap bubble is the most beautiful thing and the most exquisite in nature. That lovely phantom fabric in the sky was suggestive of a soap bubble split open and spread out in the sun, I wonder how much it would take to buy a soap bubble if there was only one in the world. One could buy a hat full of koanours with the same money, no doubt. We made the tramp from Artigny to Argentière in about eight hours. We beat all the mules and wagons. We didn't usually do that. We hired a sort of open baggage wagon for the trip down the valley to Chamonix and then devoted an hour to dining. This gave the driver time to get drunk. He had a friend with him, and this friend also had time to get drunk. When we drove off, the driver said all the tourists had arrived and gone while we were at dinner. But, he said impressively, don't be disturbed by that, remain tranquil, and give yourselves no uneasiness. Their dust rises far before us. Rest you and be tranquil, and leave all to me. I am the king of drivers. Behold! Down came his whip, and away we clattered. I never had such a shaking up in my life. The recent flooding rains had washed the road clear away in places. But we never stopped. We never slowed. Not for anything. We tore right along over rocks and rubbish and gullies and open fields, sometimes with one or two wheels on the ground, but generally with none. Every now and then, that calm, good-natured madman would bend a majestic look over his shoulder at us and say, Don't you perceive this? I am the king of drivers. Every time we just missed going to destruction, he would say, with tranquil happiness, Enjoy this, gentlemen. It is very rare and unusual. It is given to few to ride with the king of drivers. And I am he. He spoke in French and punctuated with hiccups. His friend was French, too, but spoke in German, using the same system of punctuation, however. The friend called himself the Captain of Mont Blanc and wanted us to make the ascent with him. He said he had made more ascents than any other man, 47, and his brother had made 37. His brother was the best guide in the world, except himself, of course. He was the Captain of Mont Blanc, after all, and that title belonged to no other. 
The king was as good as his word. He overtook that long procession of tourists and went by it like a hurricane. The result was we got choicer rooms at the hotel in Chamonix than we should have done if his majesty had been a slower artist. Or rather, if he hadn't most providentially gotten drunk before he left Argentière. Chapter 43. My Poor Sick Friend Disappointed Everybody was outdoors. Everybody was in the principal street of the village. Not on the sidewalks, but the street. Everybody was lounging and loafing and chatting and waiting, alert, expected, and interested. For it was trade time. That is to say, it was diligence time. The half-dozen big diligences would be arriving from Geneva, and the village was interested in many ways in knowing how many people were coming and what sort of folk they might be. It was altogether the liveliest-looking street we had seen in any village on the entire continent so far. The hotel was by the side of a booming torrent whose music was loud and strong. We could not see this torrent, for it was dark, but one could locate it without light. There was a large enclosed yard in front of the hotel, this was filled with groups of villagers waiting to see the diligences arrive or to hire themselves to excursionists for the morrow. A telescope stood in the yard with its huge barrel canted up toward the lustrous evening star. The long porch of the hotel was populous with tourists who sat in shawls and wraps under the vast overshadowing bulk of Mont Blanc and gossiped or meditated. Never did a mountain seem so close. Its big sides seemed at one's very elbow, and its majestic dome and the lofty cluster of slender minarets that were its neighbors seemed to be almost over one's head. It was night in the streets, and the lamps were sparkling everywhere. The broad bases and shoulders of the mountains were in deep gloom, but their summits swam in a strange, rich glow, which was really daylight, and yet had a mellow something about it which was very different from the hard white glare of the kind of daylight I was used to. Its radiance was strong and clear, but at the same time it was singularly soft and spiritual and benignant. No, it was not our harsh, aggressive, realistic daylight. It seemed proper to an enchanted land, or to heaven. I had seen moonlight and daylight together before, but I had not seen daylight and black night elbow to elbow before. At least I had not seen the daylight resting upon an object sufficiently close at hand before to make the contrast startling and at war with nature. The daylight passed away. Presently the moon rose up behind some of those sky-piercing fingers or pinnacles of bare rock of which I have spoken. They were a little to the left of the crest of Mont Blanc, and right over our heads, but she couldn't manage to climb high enough toward heaven to get entirely above them. She would show the glittering arch of her upper third, occasionally, and scrape it along behind the comb-like row. Sometimes a pinnacle stood straight up, like a statuette of ebony, against that glittering white shield, then seemed to glide out of it by its own volition and power and become a dim specter, while the next pinnacle glided into its place and blotted the spotless disk with a black exclamation point of its presence. 
The top of one pinnacle took the shapely, clean-cut form of a rabbit's head in the inkiest silhouette while it rested against the moon. The unillumined peaks and minarets hovered vague and phantom-like above us while the others were painfully white and strong with snow and moonlight. It made a peculiar effect. But when the moon, having passed the line of pinnacles, was hidden behind the stupendous white swell of Mont Blanc, the masterpiece of the evening was flung onto the canvas. A rich, greenish radiance sprang into the sky from behind the mountain, and in this some airy shreds and ribbons of vapor floated about, and being flushed with that strange tint, went waving to and fro like pale green flames. After a while, radiating bars, vast, broadening fan-shaped shadows, grew up and stretched away to the zenith from behind the mountain. It was a spectacle to take one's breath away for the wonder of it and the sublimity. Indeed, those mighty bars of alternate light and shadow streaming up from behind that dark and prodigious form and occupying the half of the dull and opaque heavens was the most imposing and impressive marvel I have ever looked upon. There is no simile for it, for nothing is like it. If a child had asked me what it was, I should have said, Humble yourself in this presence. It is the glory flowing from the hidden head of the Creator. One falls shorter of the truth than that sometimes in trying to explain mysteries to the little people. I could have found out the cause of this awe-compelling miracle by inquiring, for it is not infrequent at Mont Blanc, but I did not wish to know. We have not the reverent feeling for the rainbow that a savage has, because we know how it is made. We have lost as much as we have gained by prying into the matter. We took a walk down the street, a block or two, a place where four streets met and the principal shops were clustered, found groups of men in the roadway thicker than ever, for this was the exchange of Chamonix. These men were in costumes of guides and porters and were there to be hired. The office of that great personage, the guide-in-chief of the Chamonix Guild of Guides, was nearby. This guild is a close corporation and is governed by strict laws. There are many excursion routes, some dangerous and some not, some that can be made safely without a guide and some that cannot. The Bureau determines these things. Where it decides that a guide is necessary, you are forbidden to go without one. Neither are you allowed to be a victim of extortion. The law states what you are to pay. The guides serve in rotation. You cannot select the man who is to take your life into his hands. You must take the worst of the lot if it's his turn. A guide's fee ranges all the way up from a half dollar for some trifling excursion of a few rods to twenty dollars according to the distance traveled and the nature of the ground. A guide's fee for taking a person to the summit of Mount Blanc and back is twenty dollars, and he earns it. The time employed is usually three days and there is enough early rising in it to make a man far more healthy and wealthy and wise than any one man has a right to be. The porter's fee for the same trip is $10. Several fools, no, I mean several tourists, 
usually go together and divide up the expenses, and thus make it light. For if only one, I mean tourist, went, he would have to have several guides and porters, and that would make the matter costly. We went into the chief's office. There were maps of mountains on the walls, also one or two lithographs of celebrated guides and a portrait of the scientist de Saussure. In glass cases were some labeled fragment of boots and batons and other suggestive relics and remembrances of the casualties of Mont Blanc. In a book was a record of all the ascents which have ever been made, beginning with numbers one and two, being those of Jacques Balmont and de Saussure in 1787, and ending with number 685, which wasn't cold yet, in fact, number 685 was standing by the official table waiting to receive the precious official diploma, which should prove to his German household and descendants that he had once been indiscreet enough to climb to the top of Mont Blanc. He looked very happy when he got his document. In fact, he spoke up and said he was happy. I tried to buy a diploma for an invalid friend at home who had never traveled, and whose desire all his life had been to ascend Mount Blanc. But the guide-in-chief rather insolently refused to sell me one. I was very offended. I said I did not propose to be discriminated against on the account of my nationality, that he had just sold a diploma to this German gentleman, and my money was as good as his. I would see to it that he couldn't keep his shop for Germans and deny his produce to Americans. I would have his license taken away from him at the dropping of a handkerchief. If France refused to break him, I would make an international matter of it and bring on war. The soil should be drenched with blood. And not only that, but I would set up an opposition show and sell diplomas at half price. For two cents, I would have done those things, but nobody offered me two cents. I tried to move that German's feelings, but it could not be done. He would not give me his diploma, neither would he sell it to me. I told him my friend was sick and could not come himself, but he said he did not care a verdamitz fennig. He wanted his diploma for himself. Did I suppose he was going to risk his neck for that thing and then give it to a sick stranger? Indeed he wouldn't, so he wouldn't. I resolved then that I would do all I could to injure Mont Blanc. In the record book was a list of all the fatal accidents which happened on the mountain, began with the one in 1820, when the Russian, Dr. Hamill's three guides, were lost in the crevice of the glacier, and it recorded the delivery of the remains in the valley by the slow-moving glacier 41 years later. The latest catastrophe bore the date 1877. We stepped out and roved about the village a while. In front of the little church was a monument to the memory of the bold guide, Jacques Balmont, the first man who ever stood upon the summit of Mont Blanc. He made that wild trip solitary and alone. He accomplished the ascent a number of times after. A stretch of nearly half a century lay between his first ascent and the last one. At the ripe old age of 72, he was climbing around a corner of a lofty precipice of the Pic du Midi, nobody with him, when he slipped and fell. So he died in the harness. He had grown very avaricious in his old age, and used to go off stealthily to hunt for non-existent and impossible gold among those perilous peaks and precipices. He was on a quest of that kind when he lost his life. 
There was a statue to him, and another to De Saussure, in the hall of our hotel, and a metal plate on the door of a room upstairs bore an inscription to the effect that the room had been occupied by Albert Smith, Balmont, and De Saussure. It said that they had discovered Mont Blanc, so to speak, but it was Smith who had made it a paying property. His articles in Blackwood and his lectures on Mont Blanc in London advertised it and made people as anxious to see it as if it owed them money. As we strolled along the road, we looked up and saw a red signal light glowing in the darkness of the mountainside. It seemed but a trifling way up, maybe a hundred yards, and a climb of ten minutes. It was a lucky piece of sagacity in us that we concluded to stop a man whom we met and get a light for our pipes from him, instead of continuing the climb to that lantern to get a light, as had been our purpose. The man said that the lantern was the Grands Moulet, some 6,500 feet above the valley. I know by our Riffelberg experience that it would have taken us a good part of a week to get up there. I would sooner not smoke at all than take the trouble for that light. Even in the daytime, the foreshadowing effect of this mountain's close proximity creates curious deceptions. For instance, one sees with the naked eye a cabin up there beside the glacier, and a little above and beyond sees the spot where the red light was located. He thinks he could throw a stone from one place to the other, but he couldn't, for the difference between the two altitudes is more than 3,000 feet. It looks impossible from below that this can be true, but it is nonetheless. While strolling around, we kept the run of the moon all the time, and we still got an eye on her after we got back to the hotel portico. I had a theory that the gravitation of refraction, being subsidiary to the atmospheric compensation, the refrangibility of the Earth's surface would emphasize this effect in regions where great mountain ranges occur, and possibly so even-handed impact the odic and idyllic forces together, the one upon the other, as to prevent the moon from rising higher than 12,000 feet above sea level. This daring theory had been received with frantic scorn by some of my fellow scientists, and with an eager silence by others. Among the former I may mention Professor H., and among the latter, Professor T. Such is professional jealousy. The scientist will never show any kindness for a theory which he did not start himself. There is no feeling of brotherhood among these people. Indeed, they always resent it when I call them brother. To show how far their ungenerosity can carry, I will state that I offered to let Professor H. publish my great theory as his own discovery. I even begged him to do that. I even proposed to print it myself as his theory. Instead of thanking me, he said if I tried to fasten that theory on him, he would sue me for slander. I was going to offer it to Mr. Darwin, whom I understood to be a man without prejudices, but it occurred to me that perhaps he would not be interested in it, since it did not concern heraldry. But I am glad now that I was forced to father my intrepid theory myself, for on the night of which I am writing, it was triumphantly justified and established. Mount Blanc is nearly 16,000 feet high, and it hid the moon utterly. Near it is a peak which is 12,216 feet high, and the moon slid along behind the pinnacles. And when she approached that one, I watched her with intense interest, for my reputation as a scientist would stand or fall by its decision. I cannot describe the emotions which surged like tidal waves through my breast 
when I saw the moon glide behind that lofty needle and pass it without exposing more than two feet four inches of her upper rim above it. I was secure then. I knew she could rise no higher, and I was right. She sailed behind all the peaks and never succeeded in hoisting her disk above a single one of them. While the moon was behind one of those sharp fingers, its shadow was flung athwart the vacant heavens, a long, slanting, clean-cut, dark ray with a streaming and energetic suggestion of force about it, such as the ascending jet of water from a powerful fire engine affords. It was curious to see a good, strong shadow of an earthy object cast upon so intangible a field as the atmosphere. We went to bed at last and went quickly to sleep. But I woke up, after about three hours, with throbbing temples and a head which was physically sore outside and in. I was dazed, dreamy, wretched, seedy, and unrefreshed. I recognized the occasion of all this. It was that torrent in the mountain villages of Switzerland and along the roads one has always the roar of the torrent in their ears. He imagines it is music and he thinks poetic things about it. He lies in his comfortable bed and is lulled to sleep by it. But by and by he begins to notice that his head is very sore. He cannot account for it. In solitudes where the profoundest silence reigns, he notices a sullen, distant, continuous roar in his ears, which is like what he would experience if he had seashells pressed against them. He cannot account for it. He is drowsy and absent-minded. There is no tenacity to his mind. He cannot keep hold of a thought and follow it out. If he sits down to write, his vocabulary is empty. No suitable words will come. He forgets what he started to do and remains there, pen in hand, head tilted up, eyes closed, listening painfully to the muffled roar of a distant train in his ears. In his sound asleep, the strain continues. He goes on listening, always listening intently, anxiously, and wakes up at last, harassed, irritable, and unrefreshed. He cannot manage to account for these things. Day after day, he feels as if he had spent his nights in a sleeping car. It actually takes him weeks to find out that it is those persecuting torrents that have been making all the mischief. It is time for him to get out of Switzerland, then, for as soon as he has discovered the cause, the misery is magnified several fold. The roar of the torrent is maddening. Then, for his imagination is assisting, the physical pain it inflicts is exquisite. When he finds he is approaching one of those streams, his dread is so lively that he is disposed to fly the track and avoid the implacable foe. Eight or nine months after the distress of the torrents had departed from me, the roar and thunder of the streets of Paris brought it all back again. I moved to the sixth story of the hotel to hunt for peace. About midnight, the noises dulled away and I was sinking into sleep when I heard a new and curious sound. I listened. Evidently, some joyous lunatic was softly dancing a double shuffle in the room over my head. I had to wait for him to get through, of course. Five long, long minutes, he smoothly shuffled away. A pause followed. Then something fell with a thump on the floor, and I said to myself, There, he's pulling off his boots. Thank heavens he's done. Another slight pause, and he went to shuffling again. I said to myself, 
Is he trying to see what he can do with only one boot on? Presently came another pause and another thump on the floor, and I said, Good, he pulled off the other boot. Now he's done. But he wasn't. Next moment he was shuffling again. I said, Come found him. He is added in his slippers. After a little came that same old pause, and right after that, another thump on the floor. And again I said, Hang him? He had on two pairs of boots? For an hour, that magician went on shuffling and pulling off boots till he had shed as many as 25 pairs, and I was hovering on the verge of lunacy. I got my gun and stole up there. The fellow was in the midst of an acre of sprawling boots, and he had a boot in his hand, shuffling it. No, he was polishing it. He hadn't been dancing. He was the boot black of the hotel and he was just attending to business.